All right. How many of you have heard the phrase, follow your heart? Come on, more of you have heard it than that. All of us, right? That phrase is as common to American culture as unpredictable snowstorms are to Minnesota. Right? I mean, follow your heart. That is, that is the very air that we breathe here in America. And while this phrase, follow your heart, is so common to our culture and accepted by our culture, it runs in direct conflict to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful above all things. According to the Bible, the heart is desperately sick. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. See, the Bible teaches that it's our hearts, not our minds, not our hands, not our sexual organs that defile us. Hence, the conflict of kingdoms that we live in, right? As we go through the book of Matthew, we are seen as Jesus breaks on the scene and and he says, I have come to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven to bear here on earth. We notice quickly in the book of Matthew that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, they run in conflict with one another, right? And we see this even just in this culturally accepted phrase, follow your heart and what the Bible has to say about the heart. Following God and living in the world are often in conflict with one another. So this morning, what I want us to do is embrace the conflict between the kingdom of the world in which we live and the kingdom of God, and I want us to allow God's word to work in our lives like a cardiologist, diagnosing the problem of our heart and treating the root cause of our most pressing disease, which is sin. It's missing the mark. It's going our own way. It's following our heart. It's, it's assimilating to the culture and to the world around us. And so this morning, let's let God's word work as a cardiologist on us. Let's allow it to diagnose our most pressing problem and to give us the medication that we need. I'm going to ask if you stand as I read our text for this morning. It's Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. It's on page 820 in the Pew Bible, and I ask you to grab a Bible, open it up, or turn your Bible on on your phone and follow along, get your eyes on God's Word this morning. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called to the people, called the people to himself, and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use this text this morning to show us our great need for you to reveal to us our, our sin sickness and to exalt the, the medicine that we have in the gospel and the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, this text really, it presents to us one main problem that we all have, everybody in this room and everybody in the world, this main problem that we have, and I think it has three main symptoms of this problem, three symptoms that show this problem. The main problem that we all have, everybody in this room and everybody in the world, is that we have a, that the reality is, here's our problem, is that a heart not made new by Jesus is defiled and destined for destruction. That's kind of a sobering reality, right? And, and even in our worldly culture, like we, we don't want to admit that. We don't want to think that, that whoever doesn't come to Jesus is destined for destruction. But the reality is, and hopefully as we go through this text, it'll, it'll help us diagnose this problem and understand that our heart really is, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, desperately sick and deceitful. And as Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 14, that, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The heart is defiled. Murder doesn't start with a gun, it starts with anger. Adultery doesn't start with the sexual organs and sleeping with a person, it starts with something going on in your heart. Theft doesn't start with breaking and entering, it starts with wanting something that's not yours. Slander doesn't start with words. Slander starts with envy or coveting or, or bitterness. And, and, and we're all guilty of these things, right? We know the human heart, it has sickness in it. It is, it is vile and, as this passage says, defiled. It's just the reality of life. I mean, there's some good people in this world and there's some people who God has transformed and made them, made them new and then there's some people who aren't followers of Jesus who just seem to have good character. But, but we know that deep down there's some sickness in all of us and even our good things are often tainted with bad motives. And the world is at, at in conflict with one another and at war with one another because of the sin sickness of our hearts. That's what Jesus is getting at here, that our hearts are defiled. And because our hearts are defiled, they're destined for destruction. Now, we don't want to talk about this. It's a nice snowy day. You want to get out of church and go plow your driveways and shovel. And if you have kids, go play in the snow with your kids. But the reality is, is that there is an afterlife. And, and we have to deal with this, that life it, as we know it, is not all. And Jesus here in the book of Matthew is pointing his people, pointing his followers to keep their minds fixed on, on the things that aren't seen. That there is something that comes next and this life, yes, it matters, but it is not all and we need to keep our eyes fixed on what's to come. And here he's telling us that our hearts are defiled 
And a defiled heart is destined for destruction. Look at verse 13 and 14. He's speaking specifically to the Pharisees, and we're going to get into some of this in just a minute. But first of all, just grabbing onto the main problem, that if our hearts aren't made new by Jesus, they're defiled and destined for destruction. And so he's dealing with defiled hearts here in this text, particularly the Pharisees. And, and he says in verse 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Here, Jesus is dealing with the sobering reality that those with defiled hearts, specifically in this context of the Pharisees who are leading people astray, but any person who lives their life with a defiled heart, not made new by Jesus, is destined for destruction. That they are like plants that the Father hasn't planted. They will be rooted up, and he's He's already used this imagery in Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. This is John the Baptist preparing the way with the similar message. He says, now, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's this sobering reality, sobering reality that John the Baptist came proclaiming that those who do not produce good fruit, those who remain defiled and vile, those who don't have their heart regenerated and made new, they will be rooted out, they will be cut down, they will be cast aside. They are destined for destruction. Same thing that Jesus said in verse 13 of chapter 15, that every plant who the Father has not planted is rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And when the blind lead the blind, they fall into a pit. A pit is supposed to conjure up this, this imagery of destruction, of despair, of lostness. And then look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 through 43. We covered this a couple weeks ago, but just a reminder that Jesus here is talking about this, this destiny of destruction for those who won't follow him. Matthew 13, 41 through 43. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, those with defiled hearts, hearts not made new, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But contrary to that, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See the sobering reality that, that Jesus is trying to get his followers and us 2,000 years later to grasp that, that there's the sin sickness in us and those who remain sick, those who, who cling to this sickness, they are defiled and they are destined for destruction. Verse, look at verse, um, just a little bit further down, verse 49 and 50 of Matthew 13. Again, Jesus says, So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and they will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a universal problem. That, that mankind's heart is sick and deceptive and twisted. It's defiled. And in that state, we are destined for destruction. One more. Look at Revelation 21, verse 8 with me. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. It's on page 1041 in the Pew Bible. 
So in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7, God is painting this glorious picture of those who are in him for all of eternity. He will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be death no more, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. This eternal hope of glory that those who are in Christ are heading towards, but this sobering reality in verse 8. He says, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Back to Matthew chapter 15. So, so this is the biblical teaching. We just can't get away from this in Scripture. And Jesus here isn't doing a deep dive on what it means to be destined for destruction. He's not doing a deep dive on hell and the reality of hell and what hell means, but he is reminding his people that there is something to come and those who are in him, those who have received new hearts from him, they have this eternal hope of glory waiting for them and those who remain defiled. Again, we're all defiled. We all have sick hearts. Some receive medication. Some receive healing. We'll talk about that as we go this morning. And they have this glorious future to look forward to. But those who reject it, those who remain defiled, have this destination of destruction waiting for them. This is just the, the biblical teaching. And our sensibilities, we, we don't like it. We, we don't want to gather and talk about the reality of destruction and hell and separation from Christ and loved ones for all of eternity. But as we walk through Matthew, we're taking Jesus's words and we're trying to align ourselves and conform ourselves to Jesus's teaching. And so here he gives us this warning, verse 13, that every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. It means rooted up and thrown away to be burnt, to be gone, to be destroyed forever. Let them alone Again, specifically the Pharisees who are doing false teaching, they're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So Jesus starts with this, this, this warning. He, he's trying to open our eyes. He said earlier in Matthew, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. He said that right here. Those who have hearts to be softened, let them be softened. Let's change our hearts. Let's move from defilement to regeneration. And so what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to identify three symptoms of a sick heart. So he's, he's warned us here that the main problem is that hearts not made new by Jesus are defiled. They're destined for destruction. That ought to cause us to think, what's the state of my heart? Is my heart defiled? Is it destined for destruction? How do, how do I know how do I diagnose this? And if I believe this is true, that hearts are, are defiled, that out of the heart, as Jesus says in verse 19, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. If I believe this to be true, what's the state of my heart? That's a question that, as Christians, and if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, we should always be asking that question. What's the state of my heart? Christians, what is Jesus doing in my heart? How am I surrendering it to him? How am I letting him fill my heart and renew my heart and remove my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh and non-Christians? I mean, I, I think most people want to grow as good people. And, and so you should be asking yourself, what's the state of my heart? And as you ask that question, as all of us ask that question, we're going to see some of the sickness in our heart and we're going to see this morning that Jesus is the answer. He's the medication. 
So for Christians, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the one who renews our heart. Non-Christians, I want you to hear and know this morning and continue to ask your questions, but you need to know that Jesus is the only one who can renew a defiled heart or remove a defiled heart and replace it with a heart of stone. And so he gives us three symptoms for kind of understanding our heart and, and noticing the, the dysfunction and the defilement of our heart. The first one is elevating man's tradition to the same level of importance as God's commandments. This is what Jesus is dealing with right away in the beginning part of this chapter. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus. So the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They come to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said to him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, this wasn't just personal hygiene, right? Like the disciples aren't just, they're not eating, eating excuse me, with dirty hands. They're not, they're not um, ignoring personal hygiene. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they had set up what is called a hedge around the law. They had set up extra rules around God's law, around God's commands to try and protect people and keep people from breaking God's law. And what they had done is they had put their rules on the same playing field as God's commands in the Old Testament. 613 commands in the Old Testament, some moral commands, some civil commands, and some purity laws to help God's people, particularly when they were in the wilderness traveling for 40 years, to help God's people do life. In, in a way that they didn't all die from disease and, and dysfunction, and also so that they could come into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And, and so now, what over time, what has happened is different generations have built up kind of extra rules or extra traditions that aren't actually passed down from God. That's what's happening here. This is this extra hand-washing that the Pharisees had built up. It was, it was a hedge around the law. And they were more concerned about what was happening out there than what is happening in here. The Pharisees are more concerned about external conformity to rules than they are, about in, than they are concerned about internal transformation. What's the state of the heart? And so church, this is a reminder and a warning for us to, to always be vigilant to push for what's happening in the heart. To not get wrapped up in the external trappings of moral conformity or church rules or traditions. This is so easy to do and it happens usually kind of from generation to generation, right? One generation becomes convicted of something, like God the Holy Spirit will convict a generation of something. If you came to Jesus in the, in the 70s, if, Jesus, if, if you came like out of a hippie lifestyle and became a Christian in the 70s, it's very likely that the Holy Spirit convicted you of certain music, certain bands, certain lifestyles. And so then as you joined the church and became a Christian, you didn't, you didn't listen to those bands anymore. You didn't, you didn't drink anymore. And then the generation after you, they, you raised them to say, well, you can't listen to that band. They're not a Christian band. There's like Christian alternative bands, right? How many of you grew up in the era where it was like, if you like Dave Matthews' band, try Third Day. <laughs> Third Day is a Christian band. Nothing like Dave Matthews' band. Not on the same level at all. They're just... I won't give you my own opinions about the bands, but 
But some, sometimes, so what happens is one generation is very convicted by the Holy Spirit, and this is a good thing, a good move away from this life that I used to live, and now God is calling me to something new, and so I'm going to give up these things. But then oftentimes it jumps a generation, and this generation is like, well, why, why can't I listen to that band? They're really good. They have great music. And, and these people are like, well, because when I listened to them, I used to do drugs and drink. And, and this generation's like, but, but I don't. And not all of their songs are evil or bad. Some of their songs are just about life. And shouldn't I engage culture by listening to this band or, or going to this show or being involved in this? What, whatever it is, I mean, fill in your blank. We kind of all know how these things work, right? Different people have different convictions. Romans chapter 14 talks about this, that if you have a conviction from the Holy Spirit not to listen to this band or, or not to drink this or not to go to that movie or not to play this game or not to whatever it may be, not to wear these type of clothes, then let that be your conviction. But be careful about taking your conviction in, in the tradition that you grew up with and then imposing that or pressing that onto others if it's not a biblical command. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees have all these, all these kind of church traditions and rules and they're calling out the disciples for not conforming to their tradition. They're putting their tradition on the same playing field as God's commands. It's good gone bad, really. What the Pharisees did when they created these rules is they wanted to honor God. They wanted to honor his law. And so they built up some extra criteria. But now, all of a sudden, they have elevated that to the status of God's command, of God's word. And they're calling out the disciples for breaking their tradition and Jesus for breaking their tradition. They're looking for, for spiritual practice of tradition rather than coming from conviction. I mean, that's just a reminder to any of us that as we think about spiritual practice and, and different traditions that we have, it ought to come from personal conviction and not just this expected tradition. What are some of these in our culture? I mean, it, it can be things like dress code at church. How are you supposed to what clothes are you supposed to wear at certain churches? It can be music and preaching styles at church. It can be media that we're allowed to watch or not allowed to watch. I went to a, a college, a Christian college, where we had to sign a covenant not to drink when we were at college. And that came from a tradition of an older generation who thought, you can't be a good Christian and enjoy an alcoholic beverage because it's going to lead to sin and debauchery and drunkenness. And so I had to sign this covenant, and, and now that's shifting, it's changed. My in-laws went to that same college in the 70s, and they had to sign a covenant that they wouldn't drink, just like I did in the early 2000s. But back in the 70s and 80s, it also included things like, you can't play cards. You can't go to a movie theater. That changed, right? And, and so generations have different traditions that they that they cling on to. I was trying to identify some of the younger traditions that we have now that like when my kids grow up, they're going to be like, Dad, you made us do that all the time and you made it seem like it was spiritual and it was a sin to not do that and I think you're wrong. I, I, I couldn't identify it yet because I think everything we do right now is right. I'm kidding on that. We're going to be haunted. My generation is going to be haunted by our children kind of pulling the rug out from underneath some of our traditions. And so we just have to hold these things loosely and keep in mind that our traditions, our man-made traditions, cannot be on the same level as God. I mean, I mean, churches can get so wrapped up into this. You have to sing the right songs in the right way with the right instrumentation. If not, you're, you're guilty of sin. 
And it's really this clinging to tradition and it's holding tradition up to the same level as God's commandment. And so Jesus is warning us to be careful of this. That in our sick hearts, with our defiled hearts, we will try and find righteousness on our own. We will try and manufacture spirituality. We will try and make rules and laws and systems and structures and church practices that help us to be able to check things off of a box and say, I think I'm good with God because I did all of these things. And and so Jesus is warning us, be careful. Because we have in our human nature defiled hearts, we can become legalistic people. We can become people who honor tradition to the same extent and level as God's command, and we're never going to find hope and healing if we're chasing tradition over God's commands. Secondly, the second symptom that I see here is honoring God with our lips but neglecting him with our hands. And Jesus kind of gets into this. It's the same idea, really, elevating tradition to the same place as God's commands, but then he gives an example. Verse 3 and on, he says, Answer them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So the Pharisees are wanting the disciples and Jesus to do their ceremonial hand washing. They want Jesus and the disciples to conform to their tradition. And Jesus confronts them. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So now he's saying, you're actually, you've elevated your tradition so much that now you're putting certain traditions before the commandments of God. And he tells us what that is. Verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. There's a command in Exodus 21, 17 that that says this, that, that God's people are to care for their parents, to honor their parents. If their parents fall into financial hard times as they age, it's the responsibility of the children to care for them, and whoever doesn't do that, they're liable or guilty of death because God cares about people. And in the Old Testament system and structure, there wasn't this government system to take care of the elderly. It was this family system. And so he he commanded his people to care for their aging parents. Verse 5, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So the Pharisees, in their religious zeal for God, Rather than giving inheritance or using their finances to care for their aging, needy parents, they had found this loophole, so they thought. They didn't want to spend their money on their parents. They didn't want to take care of their needy, aging parents. And they were, they were like religiously zealot. So they convinced themselves that if I give my money to God, if I give my money to the temple, if I give my money to the do-goodings of our church, then I don't have to give it to my parents. It's, it's a better thing. It's a more holy thing. Verse 6, at the second half. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So again, the tradition of men, the commandments of men here was that if you give your proceeds, if you give your money to God, You don't have to take care of your parents. And that may not hit us that close to home, but think about different ways that we might be tempted to do that in our sick hearts. To over-spiritualize our following God. 
And sometimes people hit the mission field, the foreign mission field, because they're like, I want to go and do great things for God. I want to sell it all, and I want to go do great things for God, and, and God, because they feel guilted to it. I, I've watched this happen with a few people that I know who went off on the mission field because they read a book about missions, and they felt, they didn't feel the conviction of God, and I've seen this play out, and, and I've had conversations with them. They didn't feel the conviction and the call of God to go as missionaries. They felt the guilt of American Christianity. And so they said, I'm going to shun this and I'm going to go and move around the world to make disciples of Jesus and I want to be a missionary. And it went very poorly for them. And they came back home. And they realized in this process it wasn't God's call, it was the guilt of man. And they actually had things here at home to take care of. That God said to this one couple, actually, the more holy thing would be for you to deal with your student debt before you go around the world. But, but sometimes in the Christian world, we can, we can idolize certain things. And so the Pharisees are doing that. They're saying it's more holy for us to give all of our money to God and for us to do the radical thing. And our parents will let them be. Those of you in this room who are caring for aging parents, good job. That's what God would want. And, and God doesn't call all of us to do this in the same way, but God's heart is for people. And, and he's warning us, he's saying, in your defiled heart, be careful because there can be this hypocrisy between what you say, how you worship, even the religious zeal that you may demonstrate and have, and then the practicality of what you do or don't do. Don't, don't go and tell pe the people of the world, around the world, about Jesus if you're not willing to love your neighbors. And, and so Jesus is warning us to be careful our hearts are defiled, they're deceptive, and just like the disciples, just like the Pharisees, we have a propensity to honor God with our lips, but neglect him with the small things of our hands. James talks about this, the book of James, that faith without works is dead. And so church, we, we need to be careful that we're not honoring God with our lips, but neglecting him with our hands. And, and this works out in different ways, and this is not at all a political statement. I'm not engaging politics at all, but I think some of the ways that we're tempted to do this in American Christianity is to talk about world missions, to support world missions, but to not care about the refugee in our own neighborhood. Or, or I already mentioned it, to go to foreign countries and support people going to foreign countries, but not being willing to, to share the good news of Jesus with those in our, works, in our workspaces, in our spheres of influence, in our neighborhoods. Commonly, the, the American church, the evangelical church, is criticized for caring about children in the womb, but not caring about children after they're born and when they grow up into a life of poverty and the 25-year-old who's stuck in poverty, and vice versa. Sometimes people are criticized about, criticized about caring for the, the grown person in poverty, but not the child in the womb. And so we need to be careful, church that we're not honoring God with our lips and neglecting the things that he's put in front of us. Each one of us need to take time and consider, God, how would you have me serve you in my sphere of influence? Where am I in danger of honoring you with my lips, of giving lip service to God, of gathering to worship you and doing my devotions and having a spiritual life, but neglecting those that you've put in front of me? Where am I guilty of that or in danger of that? And then lastly, the third symptom here is just evil actions, evil actions. 
and I put in parentheses there, diseased, wrong, or toilsome. The Greek word for evil, it, I think sometimes we hear that word evil and we think, well, I'm not evil. I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done these heinous crimes, so I'm not evil. I might not be perfect. I might have little sin patterns in my life, but I'm not evil. Well, this word evil, it just means diseased, wrong, or toilsome. I love toilsome even. It means actions that that create tension and it creates dysfunction and it creates toil. It creates work. It creates effort. And so Jesus gets into this. Verse 19, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Again, our sin problem, this this is a symptom of the defiled hearts that we have in our flesh, right? I mean, murder, it can't be blamed on the gun, although have your conversations about gun laws and what's wise and what's responsible. Again, not even getting into that. Murder can't be blamed on the gun or the knife or the bomb. It's blamed on something in the heart. It starts in the heart. Adultery, it can't be blamed on, on the sexual organs and sleeping with another person. Well, that... It's blamed on that, but that's not where it starts. It, it starts with something in the heart. It can't be blamed on a computer screen or a phone screen looking at pornography. That, that's the mechanism, that's the fruit of something that's happening in the heart. Theft? Theft, it doesn't start when you break and enter and steal something. It starts when you covet, when you want, when, when you have to have something you don't have. False witness, lying, it's not the act of saying something wrong. It's feeling like you need to play God and cover up something. Slander? The, the fruit of slander is your speech. But underneath that, the heart of slander is, is coveting. It's envy. It's bitterness. It's hatred towards another that you want to defame their character and you want to bring them down a notch. And so Jesus here is identifying this, this defiled heart How many of you are guilty of slander? And maybe you have enough self-control to keep your tongue shut. But what's going on in your heart when you think about people you don't like? How many of us are guilty of false witness? And again, maybe we have enough self-discipline to to not tell a lie, but how often are we thinking about how we can cover our tracks and cover things up and, and present ourselves in a good light? How many of us are guilty of sexual immorality and adultery? Maybe not the actual act of it, but what's going on in the heart? Murder. And so Jesus here is identifying this defiled heart, and those who have a defiled heart are destined for destruction. So what does it mean? We're all doomed? Thank the Lord, no, that's why we gather, to fix our eyes on Christ. Remember, the main problem is that a heart not made new by Jesus is a defiled and destined for destruction. So this is where we need to apply the healing medicine of the gospel to our sick hearts. The gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to give us a new heart. He doesn't just heal our hearts, he replaces our heart. He gives us a new heart. This is the good news, church. This is why we have hope. This is why we can press on. This is why we can love God and love our neighbor because Jesus replaces our heart. He is God's fulfillment. God made a promise that he would give new hearts and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. So very quickly, as we wind down, four steps on the path to a new heart. This applies to all of us. If you're a Christian this morning, 
Renew your mind on the gospel. Remind yourself of this. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can have a heart transplant. You can get a new heart this morning as you do this. First of all, we need to hear the Father's promise. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God has made this promise. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will remove that defiled heart, that heart of stone. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Secondly, we ought to utter the sinner's plea. This isn't the sinner's prayer, as some of you have heard, and we can do that and talk about that another time, but just the sinner's plea. This is David, the king of Israel, when he was living in sin in Psalm 51.10, and God convicted him of it. Here's what he cried. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Take away my defilement and renew me. Give me a clean heart. From there, we need to trust the Son's provision. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's a new heart, a heart transplant, a new life, a regenerate heart, a heart that has come alive. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Amen? Our defiled hearts have been replaced. We've been born again. Our heart has, we've been regenerated. And now we have this inheritance that we're looking forward to and also this life that we can press into and live that is undefiled. Jesus has removed our defilement and given us purity. And then lastly, we need to live in the Spirit's power. And so just flip a couple pages to the left to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Isn't that amazing? So while our hearts are sick and defiled and, and Jesus diagnosed that, he came to replace our hearts and this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that his power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You are no longer the sum total of your sins. You are now a saint with a new heart, a new nature, a new hope. Amen, church? That's the gospel. That's why we gather. We're going to celebrate and remember that now as we take communion. So I'm going to pray, and then anytime you feel led and ready, if you have a new heart, come to the table and remember that Jesus has gifted that to you. He has replaced your heart of stone, given you heart, a heart of flesh. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in our place on our behalf. Thank you for making us new, for replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, for giving us a new spirit. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in us. I pray that as we respond with song and communion, that we would sense your presence and the gift of the new heart. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.